I'm super excited to talk with you this morning about a couple of stories that are near and dear to me, but before we do that, would you pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start today with a truth that was too long to be the title of our conference, but it's the key to what we'll be exploring today. And it's also in your booklet, so if you want to turn to the first page or the first notes page, that would be great. So here's the truth. Hope is not a feeling, it's an anchor. Say it with me. Hope is not a feeling, it's an anchor. Now I hope, oh, you're so right, Leslie. We do say hope all the time, don't we? Um, I hope we, that really sinks its way into us today. If nothing else does, I hope that does. Um, Because hope is not a man-made or woman-made idea. We all have it most days. That expectation, desire, or anticipation of something to come. That trust that something will happen. It's why we look forward to the happy ever after of a story. Or for Christians, the day when Jesus restores all things to the good God originally designed. It's a certainty that his promises will be fulfilled. Yes, our creator wired us to hope, to look forward, regardless of where we live or who we are. But sometimes hope can get distorted, or we get distracted, especially by our feelings. Tim Keller, the Presbyterian pastor and author in New York City, says the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. And we live in a time, don't we, when there's great hopelessness and despair. Teenagers are struggling to find meaning. Families struggle with rising costs of pretty much everything. And the world's daily headlines, as I experience on a daily basis at Baptist World Aid, break our hearts. The war in Ukraine, rising poverty, food insecurity, climate disasters. And do you know we live in a time when more people have been displaced from their homes than they have since World War II? So it's not hard to see why hopelessness could be so prevalent. And if you're feeling a bit hopeless this morning, well, I'm glad you're here. Because my prayer is that we may all come to see hope as an anchor for these times. And what does an anchor do, boat people? Stabilizes. Right? It, It holds you in place, doesn't it? It keeps us grounded, firm, no matter what is happening or how stormy it gets. 
And Hebrews 6.18 even says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. In other words, here we go again, hope is not a feeling. Because feelings are tricky. I don't know about you guys, but I find them really tricky. One minute we can be flying high, and the next minute the smallest thing can set us off and make us feel bad. If we rely on them, we can get in trouble. I'll give you a personal example. So some of you know, as Leslie just told you, um, I had the great privilege of serving here at Anglican Church of Noosa as the coordinator of women in ministry. Okay? Um, I've always loved working with women, coming alongside to grow together or trying to help women gain access to parts of our culture where we haven't always been welcome. Whether teaching or writing, doing public relations or working for a ministry, I've always tried to invest in opportunities for women. Coffee, Bible studies, stories, whatever. Um, So when I got recruited to work at a place called Anglican Deaconess Ministries in Sydney, which is a 100-year-old ministry founded for women and serving women, I thought, wow, this is it. Living in a gorgeous city, serving women, helping them grow in Jesus, writing resources for them, helping create new opportunities for women across Australia. Honestly, I thought it'd be the last stop on the train, that I'd work at ADM forever. Until I was made redundant. Oh, yeah, that was nice. Um, And it was out of the blue. I was given 24 hours notice. Yeah, it wasn't fun. It was a shock, and it was painful, and it ripped me up. For months, I didn't know what to do. It was as if hope died for me, because all I felt every day, felt every day, was beat up, unworthy, and sad. I fumbled to know what to look forward to. But that's when I began to learn that hope's not a feeling, it's an anchor. And God used this time to help me ask hard questions about where I'd put my hope. Was it in my job, what I did for a living, in my lifestyle or professional vision? Had I misunderstood the call? Or was my hope in the living person of Jesus? Had I made this last stop on the train more important than, well, the very reason we were at ADM or here today, knowing and loving Jesus? Well, I'm a slow learner, obviously, but I began to realize that God's given us feelings to grieve and to wonder and to empathize. They're a gift of being human, but feelings can't anchor us in our faith. Jesus alone is that anchor. This is where you say, amen. Amen. Okay, good. So today we're going to look at three biblical stories that have a lot to teach us about hope in a world of feelings. First, we'll look at what happens when hope dies through the story of a prominent leader during Christ's death. 
Next, we'll explore what happens when hope is restored through the story of the women at at Jesus' tomb. And this afternoon, Ruth will help us understand, through the story of Peter, what happens when hope lives in us. So let's look first at the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, maybe you're wondering why we'd be talking about a prominent wealthy man at a women's conference. Or why a man who seemed to have a really good life would risk so much for the corpse of Jesus. But all four gospel writers include Joseph's story for a reason. And we're going to hear them now, all four stories, um, and piece together his life as we think about what happens when hope dies. So I'm going to ask my readers to come up. Readers, come. Come, readers. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? And I'd like you guys just to come right to the microphone and read it as you, you know, as you have it. And you can follow along because they're in here. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the, of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the, of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. <clears throat> Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. (coughs) At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So did you notice how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give different perspectives on Joseph, don't they? Placing, as writers do, specific details to report the narrative. But together they paint a fascinating picture of this man. So we meet him, we meet Joseph, after Jesus has spent three years ministering to the marginalized, offering hope and healing as he traveled the Middle East preaching good news. We know Joseph was a prominent Jewish leader and probably hoped if Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah his Jewish heritage had pointed to. And to Joseph, Jesus represented, as we heard, the kingdom of God, probably. We we think he, he would have assumed that, which Mark and Luke said Joseph was looking for, right? Right, good, that's it, that's it. I know you're with me now. So, but what else do we know about Joseph? And if we had time, I would literally ask you to be telling us or talking about him with others. Um, But we don't, because Leslie will pull me off the stage if we go over. Um, Just, she won't do that. But but what else do we know about Joseph? Well, all four gospel writers refer to him only as Joseph of Arimathea, right? Meaning, he was from the Judean town of Arimathea which is about all we know of that town, though it was sometimes associated with the town in Ephraim where the Old Testament prophet Samuel was born. And in church history, it's included in some maps or might even be part of the Crusaders' territory around the year 705. But in each gospel account of that Good Friday, we get a clear picture of a successful man connected to a specific town. A man like any prominent businessman or community leader we might respect. Matthew calls him a rich man and a disciple of Jesus who puts Jesus in his own tomb. Mark describes Jesus, Joseph, as a prominent member of the council of Jewish leaders who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God and who went boldly to Pilate to ask for Christ's body. Luke calls Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action to send Jesus to the cross and who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And John says, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, 
But I loved how Joanna said it, secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. John also tells us that Nicodemus of John chapter 3, who goes at night to ask about, and that's where we get the, the verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Nicodemus accompanied Joseph with a mixture of embalming spices, an amount that was consistent with the burial of a king. So Joseph used his own wealth for burial linens and spices, wrapped Jesus' body, and used his own grave to, get, to give Jesus a royal burial in accordance with Jewish customs. And because he'd already purchased a burial site for himself, Joseph, I think it's safe to say, was an older man because young men don't think about burial plots. John describes the tomb as unused and in a nearby garden, while the other three accounts detail that a large stone was rolled in front of it once Joseph had placed Jesus in it, as if to signal Joseph's duty was done. So thinking this was his final act of devotion, Joseph used his status and resources to place an innocent and executed man to rest. Now, I was personally struck when I was preparing for this by the verse in Luke 23, verse 54. Then he took down Jesus' body. Can you imagine? Now, the cross was the most demoralizing and humiliating form of torture and punishment known especially for Jewish people. It was a form of execution reserved for the lowest class, the worst criminals, and often local authorities used it as a deterrent for others, reminding commoners who, were, who was in charge, who were in charge. So when Jesus was murdered, when he well and truly breathed his last, it was as if hope died for Joseph. Wasn't this the long-awaited Savior? What wrong had he done? Hadn't Jesus just been doing good? Joseph didn't agree with these other officials who sentenced Jesus to death, but they went ahead, and he wasn't able to stop them. We know from Scripture that Jesus himself could have stopped this, that he could have called down an army of angels from heaven. Instead, he went willingly to the cross, taking on a physical and spiritual agony we will never know. The result? Christ's death literally changed history. So imagine what Joseph, a Jewish man, must have been feeling when Christ was murdered in such a way. Hope was crushed. He was overcome with grief. And yet we see in Joseph's response something that blows me away. Even with all his feelings of sorrow, Joseph didn't allow them, allow that, those feelings to paralyze him. Instead, he did a right and noble deed caring for the body of Jesus, 
He didn't rely on his feelings in this time of despair, even though the world had gone really dark. Instead, he went boldly to Pilate, determined to do right for Jesus. It was a risky move, asking Pilate for the corpse. When he approached Pilate about burying the body of a man who claimed to be the Son of God, he knew it was dangerous on lots of levels. If they killed Jesus, an innocent teacher, would he be guilty by association? Would he be next? What would motivate Joseph of Arimathea, this prominent, wealthy, good and upright, secret follower of Jesus, to identify so publicly with a dead rabbi? What gave him such courage when he felt so hopeless? Well, many of us know from personal experience and I know we do because I know some of you, that God does his best work in the dark. And on that good Friday, as Jesus hung dead on a cross, Joseph saw a need and responded. Yes, he, he thought his hope had died, but something about Jesus had, had inspired him, captured him. So he took One step, and then another, and then another, no matter how he felt. Now, why did all four gospel writers include his story? Two things. I think because Joseph risked everything to identify with Jesus' death, and that transcended anything he felt. He pulled down from the cross the corpse of a man he'd come to love and honor as king, sponging spices across his flesh, wrapping his lifeless body in linen. This was personal. But also, including his story, showed his credibility as a man of prominence, confirming that Jesus had really died. Rumors were beginning to fly about Christ's disciples stealing his body, but the specific details of Joseph's burial preparation and placement in the tomb with a stone in front left no doubt that the execution of Jesus had been successful. The young rabbi from Nazareth was no longer alive. His corpse was wrapped and buried And Joseph proved it. Which, of course, made the account three days later of Christ's resurrection even more astonishing and more dangerous. Yes, when Joseph asked Pilate if he could bury Jesus, he risked his wealth, his power, and his reputation to do something he didn't have to, to care for an innocent man unjustly treated. It meant the possibility of giving up that which made him comfortable. Now, I'm struck by Joseph's risky decision and what it says to us today. 
it challenges us to acknowledge the torturous wounds on Christ's body, the injustice of murdering an innocent man, because Jesus' crime had been to love and to proclaim a new way of living, to give wounded hearts the miracle of hope, and to give each of us life to the full. Christ's ministry and death stirred in Joseph a new reality. Likewise, it challenges us with agency and privilege to acknowledge Christ's death and to ask with boldness those in power to stop injustice, to care for those unfairly treated, and to provide dignity and honor to those on today's margins. Now, Joseph risked everything, even when his hope had died, because of what he'd seen Jesus give up. Three days later, the most marginalized citizens of the time, women, stepped through the same darkness and entered an empty tomb. Their news shocked the world. Jesus, whom at least two prominent men had verified as as dead, was now alive? Both wealthy and powerful citizens, as well as marginalized individuals, had a role to play in the Good Friday and Easter story. They still do. So when it feels to us as if hope has died, as if disappointment and tragedy are having the last word, how do we, like Joseph, keep moving forward to do the right thing? Real question. How do we? Well, I've come to believe that the only way we can is when we continue to draw in close to the death of Jesus, acknowledging his willingness, his offering for our sake, his deep and sacrificial love for you, for me, for all of us. We can't forget what happened on the cross. We can't forget that, that's the anchor of our hope. Because when we remember, we can take a step, and then another, and then another. Because hope has not died. Woo! Hope has not died, no matter what's happening in the world or how we're feeling. Hope is alive, breathing, eternal, It's not just some thing to look forward to. It's the person of Jesus, the one who was there at creation. That's kind of cool. The second person of the Trinity, our anchor, who gives us ultimate hope in his return when he comes to make a new creation and a new earth. 
Pray with me. Oh, Lord, how grateful we are that you offered your body to die on a cross for each one of us, to give us hope for a new life. May your sacrifice, dear Jesus, change us today and every day and sustain us come what may. In your name we pray. Amen.